episode 969, The Best of the Best, Part 5, The Dante Trilogy, Part 2. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson, and if you heard the end of the very last episode, we hit a technology roadblock. I said this uh, right when we ended the last episode, but basically, uh, if you heard the intro to episode two or 968, we had planned to make a Dante mega show. It was going to be four hours long, but when I tried to produce a four-hour audio clip, for whatever reason, my little laptop wouldn't make that happen. So Ben and I worked over on it over the weekend. We couldn't figure it out. We finally decided let's just split into two parts. I cut it right in the middle. So uh, it's just two hours from the last episode, two hours here. I'm releasing these on the same day because they were meant to be one big show. So uh, yeah, here we are, part two, an unexpected part two, but really it's just going to pick up right from where the last one left off. So um, yeah, I think I'll... So the outro to this episode will be the original outro that Ben and I recorded last time we were together. And I think that's all you need to know as you dive back into this conversation already in progress. Uh, the better one, uh, the covetous, they just get to lie face down. So that's kind of a nice break. For how long? Depends on the length of your sin. Uh, you know, so, the, the, but after you've been running for a few hundred years, you get up to, oh man, what's the next one going to be? Like, oh, we get to lie down. This is awesome. <laughs> Uh, the gluttonous are, are basically emaciated. They're skeleton. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rough. Yeah. Oh, and there's, you know, nice trees there with fruit and everything that they get to stare at and not eat. But not trees that were humans like last time. No, no. These are tree trees. Regular trees. But I think they're still talking. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, And then the lustful are running around uh, in fire. Yeah, so they have to pass through the blaze. And once you pass through the blaze, you're good. And you get to Eden. Do you think that fire is, like we've talked about in the past, is it symbolic of purification? Once they pass through that, then you're good to go? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think in the case of of the lustful, um, it's, there's a sense of the contrapasso with it being, you know, a blazing fire of love or whatever, you know, you have to experience the, the way that, to disordered passion can hurt mm-hmm. you. But there's also, especially when Dante and Virgil pass through the fire at the end, uh, the metaphor has decidedly shifted from being about the lustful to being about uh, a final purification. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then we get to Eden, where we meet Matilda, and she's kind of hanging out and everything. And you know, she, we're going to see Beatrice soon. Mm-hmm. That's going to be great. She's going to be so happy to see us now. No. <laughs> And so Matilda's there. She's on the other side of these two rivers, Lethe and Onwe, that we talked about. Uh, and so she kind of explains the deal to to, Vir- or to Dante and Virgil. Virgil, by the way, is about to disappear. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. So Virgil's about to leave. Beatrice will become the new guide, I'm guessing. Yes. Uh, then what's Matilda's role? She's just hanging out there. There's There's lots of debates about what she stands for. Because she seems more important than the other passers-by. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like we meet lots of different characters that Dante interacts with, but for some reason Matilda seems more key. Yeah, the metaphor isn't quite clear. Um, 
I've read different theories, but I don't know enough about them to be intelligent on that. Point. Okay. So, you know, just uh, she'll be a mystery okay. for today. Uh, before Beatrice shows up, we get the crazy pageant showing the history yeah. of salvation. Which, if you didn't read the notes for this section, yes. you're probably very lost. Yeah, I was glad I did read the notes because, well, like the Griffin, for example. Right. I wouldn't have got that the Griffin equals Christ. But yeah. then when you know that it equals that, it's so interesting because it's, the Griffin is a being that is two beings in one. And, I, of course, you know, God is three in one, but you, you still kind of see the idea. Yeah, well, in the case of the Griffin, the reason it's Christ is because it's meant to be Christ's dual nature. Uh, uh, fully human, I was fully thinking God. it was kind of like a Trinitarian action. Uh, Dante would have gotten the number three in yeah. there with the Trinity. Okay. Yeah. And so the Griffin is pulling the chariot that is the church, you know, the 24 elders who are the Old Testament writers and, you know, all the New Testament writers show up and the Gospels show up. It's it's, it's wild. When you say the Gospels, it, uh, like I mean, they the each have this, their own kind of creature type thing. Weren't all the writers of the New Testament there? Yeah, all the, all of them show up okay, too. Yeah. yeah, you know, so Paul's there, and Old Man John comes legging behind everybody, right? And, and then Beatrice shows up, and and at you know at this point, Dante, you're thinking he's really excited because this is the love of his life, who yeah. he lost ten years ago. Is that correct? Is it ten years or more? Oh, I'm not sure. And he's expecting, or you know, as readers, we <laughs> may be expecting a nice reunion between the two. She is ticked off, you know, and she really lays into him. Uh, and essentially, it's like, what happened to you? You just completely lost it uh, with uh, the way that you, you know, I died and you just went off the path. As we saw at the beginning, she kind of takes him through his journey up until the point where we met him at the beginning of the Inferno. And she does not pull very many punches. And she is based on a real lost love. Yeah. So this is. This is the interesting behind-the-scenes part of, of uh, the Divine Comedy. So Dante first sees Beatrice when he is nine years, or she's nine years old, and he's right around that age. I'm not sure what their age difference is. So they're both young kids, and he falls instantly in love with her mm-hmm. and doesn't speak to her, but he's completely in love. And he speaks to her a handful of times. Uh, they're both put into arranged marriages to different people. I don't know if Beatrice ever actually knew that she was the love of Dante's love. <laughs> but, okay. but he's totally obsessed with her. Uh, she dies at the age of 24 okay. in this marriage. So she dies very young. Dante, meanwhile, is married. Uh, he has a bunch of kids with Mrs. Dante. And I say Mrs. Dante because we have no idea what his wife's name is. Okay. Okay, and then he writes. Well, his her last name was probably Alighieri. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Mrs. Alighieri, you know, and they have kids and everything. But Dante is completely obsessed with Beatrice for the rest of his life, and yeah. it's not just the Divine Comedy. I mean, he his other poetry is a lot of it's devoted to her. Wow, and she becomes this kind of idealistic vision of love and of perfection and he you know is obviously projecting a lot of stuff on her but uh it's almost bizarre because they spoke maybe a handful of times wow so it's safe to say the characterization of her probably not accurate to the real life person right right you know and it's one of those things where his wife reading this (laughs) like 
what the Frodo is going on? Wait. <laughs> like, oh yeah, exactly. So imagine Des gets home and you're in here pounding out, you know, a, a fourteen thousand line poem to a girl you saw when you were nine years old. <laughs> you know, and it, it's interesting because it's the case with genius where sometimes people who are geniuses just have these bizarre, uh, messed up things going on yeah. in their personal lives. You know, and it's almost out of that where if it was somebody who actually knew who was doing that and granted it's a different culture yeah. it's an arranged marriage so there are some it's not exactly a fair comparison yeah. to put them into 21st century america but man you knew somebody was doing that you'd be like you need to see the marriage counselor man <laughs> and probably a mental health counselor because it's not normal for you to be a grown man obsessed with a girl you saw when you were nine years old and well, I mean, he knew twice. her as she got older so it's not like not he, a lot he didn't love the nine-year-old version yeah of her. but that's like when it, it like he sees her at nine and it but, gets into his head and he's obsessed with her for the rest of his life i know but it sounds a little bit bad when he said because he was also nine so yeah, as yeah, he, yeah, yeah as they grew in age together he continued this love that yeah, he had but he, for even a then he didn't talk to her that much yeah like he doesn't actually know her that well yeah he's really into the in the friend zone you know he's <laughs> he's not even in the friend zone he's not even in the friend zone he's in the stranger zone <laughs> stranger danger <laughs> Beatrice is probably up in heaven after she dies. She's like, who? 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 He wrote that for me? Oh, little Dante? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I haven't seen him in years. Yeah. Okay. So back so, to it. Yeah, so, Be- so, so in the story, we get to Beatrice. It's right. not. She's not happy. And then no. you already said she's taking him through his sins. Exactly. Uh, and then kind of in between her getting mad at him, we have a pageant part two where we then see... The griffin kind of disappears, and and we have the chariot there, uh, and it's attacked by an eagle and a fox, and then there's an earthquake. And the eagle is Rome. Rome. And the fox is... Fox is is the gift of Constantine, which, according to Dante, introduced corruption into the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's an earthquake, and the chariot turns into the Whore of Babylon with a giant next to it. Okay. So... (laughs) Yeah, so there's some crazy imagery and everything, but it's essentially the corruption of the church is what Dante's trying to get across. Um, And then Beatrice comes back. uh, She yells at him a little bit more. He goes through the two rivers and upwards and onwards to Paradiso. Now, I know you don't want to double dip too much from what you said on the videos, but there are, of what you just said, there are two good points you made. One about uh, uh, kind of. What Martin Luther did with the uh, kind of leaving the Catholic Church and what Dante is trying to say and that difference. So that's interesting. But then uh, something else he just said I wanted to tackle. Oh, yeah. The reason that Beatrice was so hard on Dante isn't because she's mean. There was a why don't you talk about that first kind of the purpose behind why Dante needed this uh, reflection on his sins before he could move forward. Right. I, I and I forget exactly what I said on the video, so this might no, be that's completely better. different. No, that's good. But yeah, exactly. But so, yeah, so it's not just Beatrice. I've been up here for decades and I'm going to yell at you type of thing because I, you know, I've just been annoyed watching you. It's a sense of um, really having to confront his sins in a meaningful way. It, it's a sense of, okay, yeah, he's climbed purgatory, he's been cleansed of his sins. Uh, but that he still doesn't get to shove them under the rug. There, There is a real confrontation with sin where he has to, before he's able to enter the River Lethe and 
be absolved of the sins, even in their, the memory of committing them, he has to see them for what they are. He has to see himself. So it becomes a moment of brutal honesty, um, which is part of the cleansing process. You know, for Dante, mm-hmm. being cleansed of sins is very much an act of grace. You know, let's let's not forget that, that everything, his entire journey is an act of grace. You know, we see that from the very beginning of Inferno, where he's trying to climb the mountain himself, and he can't do it in Virgil Calms uh, because of the intercession of Beatrice and Mary and, and Lucy. Uh, and so it, it's completely grace, uh, grace throughout the whole thing. But Dante... At the same time, that act of grace isn't a snap your fingers and everything's better in Dante's world. It's grace that enables you to do the meaningful work to get rid of your sin. And so there has to be this brutal confrontation between him and Beatrice Mm -hmm. uh, so that he can truly see it. And in a sense, see how it affected, you know, this person who he loved above all, Mm -hmm. um, taking it within the narrative, of course, you know. Like we said, real Beatrice is from who? You know? Do you think that – I want to come back to what I said about the separation uh, in the church, but uh, back to Beatrice. Do you think that in some ways, reflecting on his own sin, he was working through some of his own issues while writing this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's writing this in exile, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, do you want to know when the city of Florence officially rescinded the exile? Yes. 2008. What? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody holds a grudge. <laughs> Dante was just unexiled like less than ten years ago. Seems a little bit like <laughs> a little is bit it really worth it. Yeah, exactly. Because he's dead. Yeah. Or maybe they were just going through the old law books. You know, those laws are like, get... whoa, 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 Dante's still exiled? <laughs> okay, we need to We fix should this. let him back in. Yeah. You know, but So he, that's not the same yeah. as excommunicated. So it's not no, the no, thirty no. years. Excommunication would be like kicked out of the church, right? Um, so exile. No, he's just. You remember, Italy isn't a country. What's even the, What's even the point of undoing an exile for a dead person just to be uh, nice? Honorary, honorary. Yeah, yeah. it proved him right because in Paradiso, there's a section where he predicts that he will be uh, set free of his exile in the Some, distant future. I don't know if he says in the distant future, but he's uh, you know I will be set free. So yeah, I mean Dante is somebody who. He's a poet, of course, uh, and that's what we know him for. But he was a soldier. You know, he fought in different battles in these different city states. You know, because Italy's not a country. It's uh, you know, so Florence has its own army and everything. You know, so there are all these little city states and all that. Uh, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, I want to move to a different point, but I'll wait till you're done with this point. Okay, okay. Yeah, and so he's he's a complete failure in his life because he's been involved with that. He's been involved with politics, uh, heavily involved with politics. It falls completely apart. His own party splits into you know two different factions that turn on each other. He gets exiled. He never gets unexiled for the rest of his life. The woman that he loved, uh, that he dreamed about from a child, is dead. You know, see, he's living his life in failure mm-hmm. at this point. And so, yeah, it's very much working through his own. In fact, uh, a book that I would recommend uh, for people who want to explore that type of Dante or that side of Dante is a book that just came out. Uh, which I'm reading right now. I'm right in the middle of it. It's called Dante or reading Dante can save your life or how Dante can save your life. And it's a guy written by a guy named Rod Dreher, uh, who's an interesting guy. And he just discovered the comedy. Like he knew about it, but he never read it uh, a few years ago. And at the time was dealing with severe depression, severe, uh, health issues that had come on from this depression, like, you know, psychosomatic deals, uh, was essentially 
constantly sick, unable to work, unable to do anything, and used Dante, as, uh, in addition to counseling and, and everything, but used reading the text of the Divine Comedy to help himself deal with his own emotional issues. It's oh. a very powerful book. Uh, yeah, so that's definitely going on in the text. All right, uh, new subject. So uh, you're Catholic, I'm Protestant. We've had lots of conversations between the two of us about how even in our different Christian stances, we still feel strongly about church unity. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you had mentioned that Dante w- had the kind of personality that maybe a Martin Luther had, where he saw that that Rome was doing something he didn't agree with, but he went about things in a different way. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's few few people in, in church history who have been more vocal critics of the church than Dante was. You know, he put hopes in hell. <laughs> it's like, you know, there was and, – and for a long time – that hurt his reputation with mm-hmm. the church. Uh, it's since been very much restored and everything. I mean, uh, in fact, I just realized, I learned this last week, that Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, not the Sixteenth, but Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, actually wrote an encyclical on uh, the Divine Comedy. Uh, uh, what is that? An encyclical is like a pastoral letter from the Pope. It's okay. outside of um, a church council or the Pope speaking ex cathedra, it's the highest level of authority the Pope can. So what did it say? Well, it's just talking about the importance of this work for Catholics and for culture and uh, what we can learn from it and everything. It's good stuff. You know, and you did you liked this a lot before you became <clears throat> Catholic, right? I'd actually only read it once. So you learned to appreciate it and love it even more after becoming Catholic? Yeah, I mean I'd read it once and I enjoyed it and everything, but I, I wasn't obsessive about it okay. as i am now okay. uh but yeah so dante is a scathing critic of the church uh but dante's able to separate the people from the institution you know so dante very much believes that the institution is god ordained he believes in catholic ecclesiology the catholic theology of the church um and he even the popes that he just hates and in the case of i think it's pope boniface the seventh or eighth uh, who shows up in hell or is referenced in hell, he has a huge grudge against because this is the guy who helped get him exiled. Mm. You know, so it's it's personal. Yeah. <laughs> he really hates this guy. Um, but yet he has a respect for the office and he has a respect for uh, the church as something ordained by God. And he does what very, very few of us are able to do, uh, because we all, you know, what tends to happen is we either criticize the problems we see in the church and the church along with it, or we want to defend the church as a God-given institution, and we then kind of cover up all of the issues, too. That's that's the two directions most of us go in. And Dante doesn't. Like, he just stands right in the middle and is like, or, you know, I'm going to condemn all the problems I see and yet still completely believe the theology of the institution of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely remarkable. And that's why, you know, the point I brought up in the video is some people want to see him as a proto-reformer, and I, I don't believe that. Not to say that there weren't, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say that Martin Luther was just out to throw the church out either. I, I don't think he started that way. I, he very much started just wanting to reform from the inside. Uh, and there's blame on, on both sides for why that changed. But nevertheless, um, I can't. I don't think Dante ever would have gone in that direction. Uh, you know, Dante would have been the guy where, okay, go ahead, Nick, communicate me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to start my own church, I, but I'm going to keep criticizing you. Okay. I'm not going to criticize the church. I'm going to criticize you, and that's the big difference. Okay. 
Perfect. All right. Just wanted to touch on that. And I would recommend uh, going and checking out Ben's videos on YouTube. There's four of them in regards to Purgatorio. Uh, were there four for Inferno as well? I don't know. It depends on how many. Yeah. Might and they, four and or five. I think we're already two in for Paradiso. Yeah. With a couple more coming. So, yeah, these are uh, great supplements to the podcast. And, and they do differ in the conversation other than I just made Ben talk about some of the same things because I was interested in it for more details. But uh, Ben also does a great job at kind of taking a devotional point of view. And uh, the end of every video has sort of his pastoral moment i'd say because you used there to be a go. pastor I so, did, yeah, so i gotta way. get it out somehow yeah this is your way of having an outlet to go back and and uh, kind of give a little mini sermon and a way to turn people back towards god through the divine comedy so i've really appreciated your videos thank you sir uh so i know we're going long um i have a, a few other points i want to hit as far as you know what go. the only thing also we want to do tonight is a little listener feedback and news we got to do news so <laughs> Uh, just take your time. Go ahead. All right. Don't rush. This is a great episode. So we talked about the structure. Uh, and, uh, the only other thing I want to mention with the structure is, and this is maybe, uh, I don't know what the significance is of this, but I want to throw it out that during the Inferno, Virgil and Dante are almost always turning to the left and in Purgatorio, they're always going right. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is interesting. I don't know what that means exactly, but it's one of those things where Dante is so smart that it, it, I, I don't believe it's a coincidence, even though I'm not sure what it means. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting in terms of structure of, of um, maybe this isn't so much structure, but the way Virgil's character changes from Inferno to Purgatorio, uh, where Virgil is, you know, he's the all-knowing dude when it comes to Inferno. Mm-hmm. And he knows less and less and less as we get into Purgatorio. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it to the point where he just kind of disappears at the end. It's like, hope you had a nice vacation, Verge. It's <laughs> back to hell with you. Yeah, because he resides in the Inferno. Yeah, in limbo, though. So limbo. he's got, okay. he's, he's doing okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so he probably enjoyed his time out, and now it's time to go back. And But you said that the reason for that is he... Um, he symbolizes human reasoning. Exactly. So he, from Dante's perspective, they had gone as far as they could when it comes to human reasoning, and now something else had to take over, and that something else is Beatrice, who represents uh, divine guidance, spiritual life, you know. Grace. Sp- yeah, grace, spiritual reasoning. Uh, I think the best parallel for, for those who have maybe only read Inferno or haven't gotten through all of this yet is that we have that point in Inferno outside the gates of Dis where the harpies attack or the furies attack. Okay. And Virgil's kind of at a loss on what to do, and they have to, you know, the angels get come. on the bat phone and, and call somebody down to, to come and open the gate. And Virgil's just, he's at a loss as to what to do. And that's because in the face of pure evil, human reason can only do so much. It can't overcome it. Mm-hmm. And so Virgil has many more of those kind of at a loss moments on the way up. Um, he is the undisputed master in Inferno. He becomes more and more of a fellow traveler throughout uh, Purgatorio. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and it, it, it it's a, a subtle but distinct transition. I could be wrong about this, but now that you said that, I remember a lot in Inferno, he referred to him as my master. Yeah. And in Purgatorio, did he change what he called him to more like my did he? My I don't friend know. Or, I'd have to check, but that could be. I think there might have been a swap to how he titled him. See, you're catching all sorts of stuff. I didn't even catch that. I'm not positive. But we might be there. Let's just say that, that I'm positive. I, I, I think I'm, you're positive. Yeah. 
Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about movement in Purgatory, because Purgatory, everybody's on the move. Yeah. Now, when we get to Paradiso, everybody's moving too, but it's not a movement of transition. It's a movement as of, uh, you know, being moved by the unmoved mover. Everybody's in perfect revolution around God in, mm-hmm. in Paradiso. But in Purgatorio, everybody's on the move. You know, uh, it, it, there's a constant sense of impermanence about this place, uh, which is very distinct from Inferno. When I say on the move, I don't necessarily mean, you know, because there's places in Inferno where the people are walking around, and there's places in Purgatorio, like where with the uh, Covetous, where they're lying flat on their faces and mm-hmm. everything. But yet, in Inferno, it's, when there's movement like that, it's not really movement it's the illusion of movement it's a sense of that they're not actually going anywhere they're walking around these malabulges in circle eight but they're never getting out of there and uh when there is stillness in purgatorio it's stillness it's an anticipation of transition um and so transitions are a very natural thing in purgatorio uh, and it's interesting the way that the transitions between uh the different areas will differ in Inferno versus Purgatorio versus Paradiso. So in Inferno, uh, there's this sense of where the transitions are almost violent. You know, there's mm-hmm. the, the bridges out, so we got to scramble down the, the cliff and everything. Or, oh, we can't get the, date op- or the gate open. We have to call the angel uh-huh. and get, you know, or Dante faints or something. And it's these violent transitions. Why? Because transition is not natural in Inferno. Okay. It is the natural state of things okay. to be where they are and never move. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the flip side of that, Paradiso, the uh, transitions are almost non-existent. In fact, what you'll notice as you get into it is that almost if it's a blink and you miss it moment where you move from one sphere to the next. In fact, Dante has several points where he goes, and suddenly I realized we were in a new place and I had no idea we'd even moved. And the only reason I know we're in a new place is because Beatrice looked even more beautiful than before because as she everything uh, gets closer to God, it grows more perfect and more beautiful in okay. his radiance. And so it's this natural updrift as the soul rises into communion with god and it's it's the most you know it, it's almost non-existent every everything is in some level illusionary and metaphorical in paradiso because human words can't actually express what dante experiences there and so the even the transitions are metaphorical, but in Purgatorio, the transitions are just very smooth, very natural. Just, oh, it's time to go up. We go up, you know, and it's fine. And there's the angel. He scrubs the pee off your head and away you go. So transition uh, is just the most natural in Purgatorio, Okay, uh, which is, is somewhat interesting to me. Uh, we already talked about how movement is only possible in the light of the sun, mm-hmm. you know, which again is that even though this is a place of movement, we, we have to be reminded that it's movement by way of God's grace right. only. You know, this isn't uh, whatever human effort is involved, it's human effort enabled by God's grace. Uh, the punishments we talked about a little bit. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, the punishments themselves, the other key way that they differ from the Inferno is that in Inferno, the punishments are an end, whereas in Purgatorio, they are the means to an end. Uh, the punishments in Inferno are the natural state of those souls that are there. That's what they have worked towards their entire lives, in a sense. And they are getting what they want. We talked about that whole idea more in the Inferno episode. Uh, whereas in Purgatorio, the punishments 
are almost there in spite of themselves. They're there because because they have to be, uh, but they're only meant to be there temporarily. Uh, and so the punishments from and that kind of ties into what we talked about how they're more training they're more uh dante doesn't want to offend our delicate sensibilities too much with these punishments and everything why because he wants us to see beyond uh just the punishment and it also goes to the point that again gets to why purgatorio and paradiso even more so are harder to read than the inferno because the inferno is all about the self you know and so every character we meet is in its own little world Mm -hmm. in essence uh and you can even take that very literally a world of their own creation it is the self of each of them carried to its logical conclusion and there's nothing else and so we encounter a soul and it's we we get the full brunt of their personality uh, whereas in Purgatorio, what we're experiencing through these punishments is the movement beyond the self, um, the movement into something greater than oneself, first with the church and then finally with uh, you know, the beatific vision in Paradiso. And so that those blunt personalities recede into the background. Uh, the stories are briefer. Mm-hmm. We, we can't – it's harder to tell the different characters apart. Why? Because they're increasingly becoming part of something greater than their own story. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the most interesting parts of Purgatorio – and this is well, – I want to talk a little bit about Purgatorio and the Mass just because we began that theme uh, in Inferno, and it's very important for Paradiso uh, – so we'll talk about that at the very end. Uh, but then the sense of already but not yet, which is a big theme, of course, in Christian theology, you know, the sense of that we are already saved, but we are not yet wholly saved, or, you know, however you want to think about it. Um, the kingdom of God is here, but it is not yet wholly here. We, we've talked about that stuff in the past. It's uh, nothing too crazy. But that's that's the theme of Purgatorio. Um, if you want to look at this metaphorically, Purgatorio more than anything else represents our lives on earth. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it is how we live out our earthly existence. You know, so it's there's all these kind of tension points throughout Purgatorio. Uh, for example, I mentioned how the gate of paradise is the gate of paradise at the foot of the mountain of Purgatory. So you've passed through the gate, you are through the gates of paradise, but yet you're not in paradise yet. You know, so there's a tension there. Uh, you're cleansed of sin <clears throat> at the top of Eden, but there's still this chastising that's required from Beatrice. There's still this final cleansing, so there's tension there. Um, There's tension in the pageant as we see the glory of God and divine providence and the history of salvation contrasted with the human errors that are allowed to to come in. Uh, But perhaps the most significant one is the way that Purgatorio is situated perfectly between uh, the church militant and the church triumphant. Now, are you familiar with those terms and how they're used in Christian theology? I'm trying to think. I mean, I I do have a master's of theology, but I don't think I'm very familiar with those terms. Well, so the church triumphant and the souls in heaven. Okay. You know, and maybe they're more Catholic. I don't know. That's a, um, church militant would be the, the souls on earth, you know, Christians on earth, the church that is. Um, and militant in this case doesn't mean that we're out killing people, but just, mm-hmm. you know, striving against the devil, the world, sin, all that good stuff. And per, the souls in purgatorio, which would be, if we were to complete the scheme, the church penitent is how, the term that we would use for, or that Catholic theology would use for the souls in purgatory, stands 
exactly between those two and is connected to both of them and deeply reliant on both of them. Um, you know, so it's it's the middle point between you're no longer part of the church militant responsible of you know bringing the kingdom of God in the world yet you're not yet triumphant, and the souls are constantly asking for prayer uh, as you know when you get up there ask Mary or whoever to pray for me or you know if you get back to Earth ask so and so to pray for me or help me be remembered or everything, um, and I know that that's a controversial theological point as far as how you know do prayers of the dead or how does that work or does it work or anything like that but i think that outside of that whole debate it's a powerful moment of dante trying to show us the interconnectedness of the church uh and the way that the church past present and future is 100 percent interdependent mm-hmm. on one another um and the souls in purgatory if nothing else have that figured out along the way in their journey okay. That's interesting. And you do talk more about that on the video. So if you want to hear more about Ben talking about uh, praying, no, prayers for the dead, prayers for the dead, yeah. that is on the videos. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, talk about how does the pur- how does Purgatorio work with the mass? Um, you know, so we talked about how the Inferno essentially represents the journey to the mass. It is the world. It's uh, we can compare the divine comedy to a uh, cathedrals the grotesque areas on the outside of the cathedral um so purgatorio would really be kind of the liturgy of the word so in a, in a catholic mass of course you have the liturgy of the word uh and then you have the liturgy of the eucharist so the liturgy of the word you know is readings uh from you know old new testament and the gospels it's uh, singing of the psalms you know hymn and everything confession or penitent act of, of contrition and all that a homily so you know that all that good stuff and all of that is preparing us for the moment of communion with christ in the eucharist and that's and so the metaphor actually works very well for this it's it doesn't take too much explanation to realize that that's exactly what's going on in purgatorio it's this preparation for what's to come mm-hmm. uh, and so even though it's not a very complicated point you have to get it when it comes to purgatorio because i think that the metaphor of the comedy corresponding to the mass is essential for being able to understand paradiso when everything recedes into the background except mm-hmm. christ uh, and i bring this up in one of the early paradiso videos the whole idea that um you know if you're at the mass there's a lot of different human variables still at play in the liturgy of the word. It's, you know, is the homily good? Does the pastor put you to sleep? Or, the, you know, is the singing good? You know, so it's preparing you for that point, but it's ultimately there's a lot more variation in that part. And then you get to the liturgy of the Eucharist, and, and the priest says the same thing mm-hmm. week after week after week. Uh, and the consecration's the same, and the things you say are the same. And so it reaches this point where uh, the human differences recede into the background until there is nothing but you and the Eucharist and the church in that moment. And that's what's happening in Paradiso, where those personalities of the different characters recede even farther into the background. The text itself recedes into the background, and we reach the moment where we are the whole goal of Paradiso is to draw us into the contemplation of God. Uh, and so, again, we'll get more to that when we talk about Paradiso in a month or so, but you have to understand what's going on in Purgatorio, preparing you for that moment to be able to fully appreciate it when you start reading Paradiso. Perfect. And I will be starting to read Paradiso tomorrow. All right. I always wait until after we podcast so I can have a clean slate. Fresh slate, yeah. Yeah, and so 
that's tomorrow for me. And yeah, I, I think it will be about probably a month before we're back at it. Yeah. For that episode. So, Ben, once again, great work. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we are going to have a follow up episode to this r- next. So, the next yeah. episode where we just dive a little bit deeper into not Dante's theology, but legit real world theology surrounding purgatory. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk more about that next. So, uh, any other closing words or should we just hit that music let's hit that music alright there it is well everybody thanks so much once again for joining us I think that is all from here yeah I'm Matt Anderson I'm Bendy Bono we are the Sci-Fi Christians signing off ah right, goodbye going to purgatory everyone no going to paradise oh that's right off to heaven yeah Episode 377, Pondering Paradiso. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DiVoto, and we are back with the long-awaited conclusion to our Dante episodes. This is going to be a big one. It is. I can't believe we made it. Ben, and I can't believe I read medieval poetry. You did it. You finished. Man. You know, I just got to get this out of the way. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I think I've been mispronouncing this for a couple weeks on the show. Oh. For some reason, I wasn't saying Paradiso. I think I was saying Paradiso. I've, 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 I've heard I. other people mispronounce it, so I won't feel bad about it. But yes, there's no I. So just Paradiso. Yes. Okay. Glad we got that out of the way. Man, what a journey. We started this back last spring. Ben was taking us through the Lenten season and into the Easter season. Yeah. These uh, video weekly videos were coming up. I was watching them. I, I stuck pretty closely with the schedule at the beginning, and then with this one fell behind by two months. Well, you just extended it into the ordinary time season. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's been fun, and I'm glad you encouraged me to do this. So thanks. You're, you're welcome. Uh, and, and it's no small feat finishing the entire comedy. There's plenty of people who kind of get through Inferno and... and give up because it does get harder and harder well we've talked about this on the show and off air but yeah i think you described it really really well and maybe i can try to do it and you can fix whatever i say that's wrong but the inferno is uh easier to understand because it's more concrete and and less connected to god in the sense like hell is actually less connected right. to god but then dante purposely made purgatorio and paradiso harder because the closer you get to god the harder it is to comprehend things oh yeah yeah we'll we'll talk about that quite a bit actually i have a number of things to say on the uh what we might call the problems of paradiso problems in a, in the sense of uh why this is such a difficult work uh why it's difficult for dante uh and that's actually a major part of of uh dante dante and scholarship when it comes to studying the paradiso is just how different this one is even from purgatorio and i've heard you say on the videos that and you just said it right now people will usually be able to get through inferno pretty well and then they get to purgatorio and it's a little bit tougher but they probably finish it and he and you had mentioned on the video a lot of people can't get through this last one yeah now did you find that to be your experience where this one was harder or were you maybe just so geared up for it that by by the time the it didn't live up to the hype and it was a breeze yeah a couple different factors number one we're doing the show so i knew i had to so there was never a question am i going to finish this but number two 
you'd warned me ahead of time. And so, uh, again, it was a case where spoilers saved the day. Yeah. You told me it was going to be tough. And so I went in there with those types of expectations, and I think it turned out fine. I mean, I, I got a lot of good out of it. I do still think Inferno, I could get my mind around more and maybe even enjoy more. But yeah. I, I still respect the material uh, so much that I give it five stars. Yeah, and as we'll see... A little bit later in this conversation, uh, the inability to get your mind around the material is one of the major things that Dante is trying to accomplish. Uh, so, th- and that can be a bit of a frustrating experience for some readers because when the point of literature is to frustrate you mm-hmm. uh, and then it succeeds, what do you do with that? So, we'll talk about all that uh, in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I have a lot of material to cover I mean, we, here. We, we, we're going to have a short news episode this week, so feel free to take as much time as you need. I've got a few things I want to touch on, but I might sprinkle it in as it becomes pertinent to our conversation. Oh, so. that sounds good. Well, maybe where we should start is just kind of to give a brief overview of, like we have with Purgatorio oh, yeah, and Inferno, of the structure of Paradiso. Uh, so in Paradiso, or in Inferno, we have the circles. In uh, Purgatorio, we have the terraces or ledges, the seven deadly sins. And now in Paradiso, we have the spheres. Right. Are they just planets? Yeah. Or not always? Well, um, yeah, I mean, Dante is drawing uh, quite a bit from medieval cosmography here, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. But yeah, they're, they're mostly planets except for the sun. Right. Which is not a planet. Not a planet. So I, I, every time I read Paradiso, have you ever seen the SNL Will Ferrell sketch where he's on with yeah. Jeff Goldblum? And, What's your favorite planet? Mine's the sun. And that's <laughs> yeah. what I always think about. But, you know, of course, he's coming, you know, this is from a medieval perspective. So I, I don't know how they precisely all that. We'll talk about that in a bit. So uh, we actually start with the moon, also not a planet. Right. Yes. Not. Yes. But yet habitable. To yeah. a certain extent. I bet we'll get colonies there in no time. Eventually. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just like with Inferno and uh, Purgatorio, uh, the people who inhabit, kind of inhabit, that's another thing we'll have to talk about in a minute, but maybe just to touch on that here, is that these people, Dante is seeing them on the spheres, but that's not where they literally reside. I don't know if you caught that. That's a bit of a difficult point, uh, at least in the first couple readings to catch. No, I didn't get that. Is that everybody who he sees in the in Paradiso actually appears twice. They appear to him, one, on their respective planet, and then they appear a second time in the Empyrean Rose at the end, where you know, you're right on the page for it. I uh, I kind of see where you're going, so I decided to open it up there. So, uh, you know, at the very end of Paradiso, once we've been through all the spheres, we get to the Empyrean, which is where God actually is. And there's this kind of rose there with just thousands upon thousands of thrones where all of the blessed live. And you're saying rose like a flower. Right. That's kind of Not the like metaphor. Not like rows of people. No. Well, they're, <laughs> they're rose oh, in the rose. Yeah, okay. How about that? And uh, God is at the center of the rose, and so they're all gazing upon him. And that's where they literally are in terms of paradise. But as you know from reading the text, as Dante ascends through paradise, he's given more and more grace to be able to take in more and more of the glory of paradise. And so for the first part, uh, most of the... uh, uh, a poem, actually. He he is not seeing things as they literally are, but he's seeing visions, metaphors, however we want to think about that. It's not 100% clear 
that kind of shows, helps him to understand the organization of paradise. Uh, but the people such as on the moon who he sees there are not actually literally on the moon. It's a mediated vision and experience for him. Okay. Uh, that's complicated, of course, and we're going to find a lot of that in paradise where we have to kind of hold contradicting vision ideas in our minds at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dante is literally in these spheres within the Dante and cosmography, but the people are not literally there with him. Okay. And we'll see more of that. So just, if it doesn't make perfect sense, don't sweat it. It's difficult. And that's kind of the point. Okay. Okay. But, for the purpose of our conversation, we'll uh, go the way Dante does, as though we are literally seeing these people there. So the first three um, areas of, of Paradiso are actually people who are there, um, but we have their sins pointed out to us more than their uh, their their virtues. Uh, they are not sinful. They are not being punished. Uh, they are in paradise, but yet they are of a lower rank. And then once we get above those first three, every, there is still rank, but we focus exclusively on our virtues. So on the moon, we have the inconstant, you know, people who have broken their vows or whatever. And we're introduced to a couple of nuns who were uh, forced to break their vows of chastity and, and marry. And um, there's conversations about the justice of punishing them for that. But yet they, in fact, defend God's ruling, uh, an interesting inversion of what goes on in Inferno. Oh, right. So yeah. again, though, just just to make sure I'm caught up, as in Inferno and Purgatorio, there are levels in Paradise. Yes. That, depending on how close, uh, not close you are to God, how, I mean, basically how... There's different... Uh, how you obeyed him on Earth? Well, not necessarily, um, because that's only really relevant for the first three. Okay. After that, we have no reason to believe that, for example, the theologians we meet on the sun are any more or less obedient than the contemplatives whom we meet on Saturn. Okay. It's really just a matter that God's grace shines upon the different spheres uh, to different degrees. Okay. But yet... What the people on the spheres understand, and Dante does not initially understand, Dante the uh, Pilgrim, of course, because, again, we have to make that distinction between Dante the Pilgrim and Dante the Poet. Mm -hmm. uh, Dante the Pilgrim does not initially understand is that uh, the, the lesser degrees of grace in some of these spheres are not a result of punishment, but rather of making up the harmony that is paradise. It is... Uh, the the way that they all interact together and form this celestial dance around the beatific vision uh, is perfect as it is. So it's not a defect. Rather, they are, yes, they in the case of the moon, Mercury, and Venus, yes, they are there because of some of their defects on Earth, but yet those defects have been perfected by God's grace so that they are exactly where they are supposed to be to complete the picture of Paradiso. Okay. Again, Two conflicting ideas. They're there because of their defects, but there's no defect involved in where they are. They are where they are supposed to be, okay. and where they are is perfect. Two conflicting ideas that we have to hold in our heads at the same time. Okay. Uh, so the moon has the inconstant. The mer Mercury has the ambitious. You know, people who made it into paradise, but maybe you know had had more worldly affairs on their minds. Uh, Venus has lovers. People who were preoccupied with uh, love at the expense of the love of God. Uh, and then we move on from there to really everybody else who we see um, 
is not uh, we we aren't pointed out any of their defects, but rather their their virtues. So we have the sun, where we have the theologians, uh, and this we spend a long time there. So we get these kind of uh, gr- two groups of uh, theologians, and Thomas Aquinas comes out and speaks to us about the Franciscan order, and then Bonaventure comes out and speaks to us about the Fra- the Dominican order, uh, which is significant because Thomas is a Dominican and Bonaventure is a Franciscan, so they praise each mm-hmm. other's orders and they point out the defects of their own. This is meant to show the way that paradise brings about harmony for these two orders that were rivals at the time, uh, and now they're united in harmony and everything. Uh, on Mars, we have the warriors of the faith, uh, including Dante's ancestor Cassia Gouda. We'll talk about him a little bit more. It's kind of interesting that they chose to make Mars for warriors, since Mars is the god of war. Right. Well, I mean, Dante knew his uh, mythology, so probably does it tie in to the other? I can't remember. Do the other planets tie into Greek and Roman mythology? Well, yeah. I mean, Venus is lovers, and and, um, I'm sure there's probably uh, you know significance to the others, but. I don't know what it is. Okay. But yeah, I, I would imagine. So, I mean, uh, you know, Dante spends a lot of time discussing astrology uh, in there, which strikes us as like we, we have in our minds that you know, astrology is a very unchristian thing. Uh, and I suppose it is in today's context, but in the medieval context, uh, the idea that the stars had some kind of influence on uh, human life and human decisions was really just an accepted fact that wasn't controversial it wasn't a you know mystical idea outside of christianity it was just part of how they understood the world Mm -hmm. so uh you know the idea that the planets would have influence on your life was you know just an accepted fact uh for dante okay so yeah yeah for sure you'd see that Uh, then on jupiter we have the just including the emperor justinian who by the way uh you remember the long canto where he makes his speech um, or maybe it's not just, is it Trajan or Justinian? Not positive. Oh, it's whatever that emperor is. But yeah, there's that dude. And he makes his long speech. It's the only canto that is a single monologue in the Oh, that's right. Comedy. I did read about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I might have his name wrong, but we'll figure that out. And Saturn, we have the contemplatives. Um, we have the fixed stars, where the angels are, the pre- or maybe they're in the prima mobile. Uh, and then the Empyrean. Where the Virgin Mary is is enthroned at the center of this rose, or in the highest throne within this rose, and everybody looks upon the beatific vision, and there is God Himself as a single point of light, and Dante takes Him in, uh, and is essentially enraptured as the poem comes to an end. Didn't Jesus appear separate from God at the end? I mean, but well, didn't we see Mary and Christ? together and then christ left and then god showed up uh well we see mary and christ together but it's still part of the mediated vision okay deal uh so yes we do see them lowered down i think within the fixed stars uh it's uh, it's around the time where he's kind of questioned by peter and and james and john on the uh, theological virtues of faith hope and love oh, yeah. but yes by the time you know the 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 trinitarian metaphors and and uh images when we get to the beatific vision are astounding so yes jesus is very much there okay yeah or the sun rather some of my favorite parts were during that faith hope and love part Mm -hmm. yeah so he you know he has that kind of questioning by 
Peter, James, and John, and passes with flying colors. Yeah, so good work, Dante. That. Uh, it's also significant to note that when we get to the Empyrean, Beatrice leaves, mm-hmm. and it's St. Bernard who comes in uh, and takes over and leads Dante up to It's sudden, too. Yes. Dante didn't even notice, and then Bernard's like, it's okay, if you look quickly in the sky, you might be able to see her as she's going to God, and right. he is able to see her one last time. And Yeah, in fact, Dante doesn't even realize that she's gone. He, I think that the sentence is something to the effect, and this is a paraphrase, not a quote, but I looked for she and there was a he or something yeah. like that you know he has a pun on the on the different gender pronouns and uh you know and so there's saint bernard uh, who is there he's chosen because saint bernard is uh uh one of the foremost writers on devotion to the blessed virgin and so as we see and uh, as dante's ascended to the beatific ver- vision he has to uh, he saint bernard prays to mary for the grace that he'll be able to have to see to look upon god uh and then we get the wonderful canto 33 where he's just enraptured with the beatific vision uh, i kind of thought so 33 was the last one i kind of thought they might end it with him being escorted back to earth i didn't really catch that did that happen anywhere it does not it's implied of course so he just I, so in a sense it feels like it ends with him in paradise yes but with the implication that he's going to be heading back yes yeah, uh, and there's reasons that it ends there, okay. which we'll get to okay. in due time, of course. All right, so we have this kind of similar structure and everything. Uh, it's a very difficult one to get your mind around a little bit, because there's a lot more going on uh, in terms of the amount of space that we cover, uh, but there's also a lot less going on in terms of the amount of description. Like, you know, if you think about Inferno, where you have Dante and Virgil literally scrambling down this hill and up up, up this hill, uh, you know, into the next uh, circle or whatever. Or you know, they have to be lifted by a giant uh, from circle eight into circle nine, and you get these wonderful transitions. Well, the transitions are literally blink and you miss them in Paradise. In fact, Dante only realizes that he's gone to another sphere because he looks at Beatrice and she's more beautiful because she's now closer to God's mm-hmm. grace. Uh, there's very little differentiation in terms of the different spheres outside of the people who are there and the virtues that are amplified. Uh we don't really get much in the way of physical description of what these places look like uh, and everything. And so um, things become much more vague, which is why it is harder to to deal with. Uh, I think what I want to talk about, though, before we kind of get to the problems of Paradiso, is there's a few things that we need to understand before we get into uh, dealing with some of those challenges of the difficulty of the text and why Dante wrote it that way and all that good stuff. Uh, so the f- now you've read some NT Wright, yes. Matt. So do you remember in, any of NT Wright's conversations on the concept of controlling narratives? No. Okay. So that's that's all right. That's good because then you can tell the audience exactly. As well. uh, so NT Wright, when he's talking about now, whether you agree with NT Wright or not, is irrelevant to this conversation. Uh, I'm going to use him because he's the uh, he, he provides a solid uh, some solid examples, uh, and the idea is to get the concept, not necessarily to agree or disagree with NT Wright because uh, I know that he can be 
some people find it controversial. I don't want us to get distracted by the controversy. But N.T. Wright, uh, you know, when he's writing about something like Romans, which he's he's written a lot on Romans, uh, and you get to Romans four, where Paul talks about uh, he uses he he brings up Abraham and Abraham's justification. And the question that N.T. Wright throws out there is, why is Paul doing this? And one of the typical answers has been, again, this is a simplification, but we're, we're not actually trying to break down N.T. Wright's theology. We're just trying to understand this concept, is that, well, Paul's just throwing Abraham out as an example, kind of like a yield timey sermon illustration, right? Um, and N.T. Wright says, no. What Paul is actually doing is importing the entire Abrahamic narrative into his text as a controlling narrative, the idea being that if you want what Paul is doing, according to N.T. Wright, is saying that if you want to understand what I'm saying here in the book of Romans, you have to understand that within the framework provided by the Abrahamic story for justification. So Paul might only reference one or two sentences towards Abraham, but he's bringing in that entire narrative of justification for Abraham, and that makes all the surrounding verses uh, regarding Abraham's justification relevant for what Paul is saying. That's the idea of a controlling narrative, it's an, uh, or an imported narrative, or however you want to think about that term. Uh, the idea is that you have a narrative, you have a, a, a text, but then within that text there are references to another text, often very minimal, very slight, but you're supposed to pick up on them and then read the text you are reading in the light of that imported text, that controlling narrative. So according to N.T. Wright, we're supposed to read the book of Romans, uh, at least in part, in uh, with, with the Abrahamic story of justification in our minds. Okay? Okay. Is that At least so, the concept page. is clear. Yep. Paradiso is doing this in a number of different ways. Uh, we have a few controlling narratives that we that are imported that we need to take a look at, and then a couple of controlling concepts, and we have to get these okay. uh, in order to understand what's going on in Paradiso. And the first one is our old buddy we were just talking about, not N.T. Wright. He, he doesn't have anything to do with, with Paradiso, but, but, but the Apostle Paul. Oh, yeah. So, pop quiz. How many times is Paul mentioned in the entire Comedia? Zero. Once. Once. Once in Inferno 2, when Dante is protesting to Virgil that, oh, I don't think I can do this. And he says, I am no Aeneas. I am no Paul. Okay. That's the only time Paul gets mentioned. But yet there's a very important Pauline narrative that is imported into the text of Paradiso. And that is Paul's reference to being caught up in the third heaven. Oh, yeah. From 2 Corinthians 12, 2 to 4. And I'm just going to read those three verses so that we, because they're going to be very relevant. He says, and I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Just a, a quick reference, a quick a side note here. Paul tells this story in 2 Corinthians as though it happened to someone else. Uh, many commentators today and pretty much everybody in the medieval era assumed that Paul's actually talking about himself right. here. I mean, that's a pretty common interpretation. Again, you don't have to agree with that interpretation, but that's what Dante thought. That's what lot, everybody in his time would and have I thought. Said, and yeah. both of us went to school for theology. That's basically all that professors and scholars teach, is that right. Paul is speaking of himself. That would be the, the most common position right. then and now. So, 
uh, who is caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Yeah. The, okay. You know, I, I was going to add on, and people have speculated that because Paul had this very unique vision of heaven, that's why he got the thorn in his side to give him some humility because he had been given such a great gift right. with this vision. And so the, the thorn in his side, whatever that was, was meant to kind of keep him grounded, keep him more humble. Yes. Uh, so Dante... That's, that's not necessarily biblical. That's just interpretation. Right, right. Okay, so Dante. Dante then imports this narrative into Paradiso, and we're supposed to read Paradiso in light of the Pauline journey into the third heaven. Okay? Okay. Now, Dante actually starts importing this narrative for Paradiso, and this is where we get a good picture of his genius and how interconnected the text of the entire Commedia is. He actually imports it back in Inferno 2 for the first time. He references it several times, especially in, in Paradiso, but he begins importing it back in Inferno 2 when he makes that reference to, I am not Aeneas, I am not Paul. Why does he single out those two? Isn't Ananias the... Uh, Aeneas. Wait, are we thinking of the same guy? I said, do I say it wrong, or... Well, who are you thinking of? I'm thinking of the guy that prayed for the scales to come off his eyes. No. Not that guy? No. Then I, who, I don't think I know who Aeneas is. Aeneas is the character of Virgil's Aeneid. Oh. He's the founder of Rome, according to uh, okay. Virgil. Well, then I've never read that, so I don't think I can add to this part of the conversation. So, definitely not. Well, that was a useful thing to clear up, because if other people are thinking yeah. Ananias, like, why has Ben mispronouncing Ananias? Yeah. Very confused. Okay. So, in... Uh, the Aeneid, uh, book six of the Aeneid, Virgil, uh, or not Virgil, Aeneas uh, descends into Hades. He des descends into what isn't really uh, a direct equivalent of hell, but is the underworld. Okay? Uh, and what does Paul do? Well, he ascends into paradise. So we've already seen Dante uh, give the lie to what he says in Inferno 2. He is an Aeneas. He does ascend into the underworld just like Aeneas does. And so now we ought to, if we are attentive readers, which this is, you know, don't feel bad if you miss this. This is tough stuff to pick up on, even after a few readings. We should be anticipating that he already, he, he became an Aeneas. He, ascend, he descended into hell. Now we should be awaiting for him to become a Paul and ascend into heaven. Okay. Okay? Got it. Does that make sense? Yep. Uh, more to say on the Pauline uh, uh, Third Heaven narrative in a little bit, but just understand it's there. The second one is actually the story of Ulysses, but not the one that you're all thinking of from the Odyssey. Another? No, 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 no. This is Dante's own story of Ulysses from Inferno 26. Okay. So let's cast our minds back there. Do you remember? So this is in Circle 8. It's uh, Malibolgia 8, so the mm -hmm. circle is divided into those ten pits, and in the eighth of those pits is the pit of the false counselors, or the, you know, the, the, yeah, the false counselors. So uh, one of the people who is, spends a lot of time talking to us there is none other than Ulysses, and Dante kind of invents his own narrative of Ulysses there. Because um, I think, I, don't, I remember we were sort of surprised to find him in the inferno right 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense because Dante is a um, Roman partisan, and so yeah, which we're tying back to the Trojans, and, okay. and Ulysses is on the other side. But yeah, there's Ulysses down there, and Ulysses after he gets home, according to Dante. So he, all the events of the Odyssey happen. He's reunited with Penelope, and and they all lived happily ever after, right? Well, not according to Dante. According to Dante. Uh, Ulysses gets a little bored, and so he gets the gang back together and says, let's go on a, on a boat trip. And so they go on this expedition. They're going to sail around the world, uh, and they actually sail to Mount Purgatory mm. within uh, Inferno 26, where they crash and die. Oh. So according to Dante, that is how um, Ulysses dies. He, he, he sails past the the limits of where humans are supposed to go the first ever fan fiction that's right <laughs> don't don't call it that no 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 uh he sails past the limits of where humans are supposed to go because then this is you know one of the features of medieval cosmography is that all the land on earth is on one hemisphere and then the other hemisphere is completely water and it's impossible to get there okay, okay? Uh, never mind why they thought that they did okay and so uh, dante uh assumes that uh, you know ulysses gets his way there but he's where humans aren't supposed to go on their own and he crashes on the shores of mount purgatory and dies now We've actually been following uh, this narrative for quite a, while, a long time because Dante has already gotten to the shores of um, of Purgatory and, unlike Ulysses, did not crash and burn but ascended the mountain and is now in paradise. Uh, but he makes frequent references, especially at the beginning of Paradiso and Paradiso 2, uh, to him being on a voyage okay so i'm just going to read uh just a little bit here he says all you who in your wish to hear my words have followed thus far in your little boat behind my ship that singing sails these waters go back now while you still can see your shores do not attempt the deep it well could be that losing me you would be lost yourselves. And so there's this is one of many references that he has, but he uses the ship metaphor again and again and again. Why? Because Dante is succeeding where Ulysses failed. And so if we're supposed to see Dante is fulfilling the role of Paul, we're now also supposed to see him as a counterpoint to Ulysses in the Paradiso. Okay? Okay. Uh, and then we're actually supposed to, un- uh, he, he in many ways is importing the entire text of Inferno itself as something of a controlling narrative, though again as a counterpoint. I'll have more on this a little later on, uh, but well, all three cantos have uh, amazing amounts of parallels in them, uh, Inferno especially works as a counterpoint uh, to Parad- uh, Paradiso, or maybe the other way around, it would be better to say Paradiso works as a counterpoint to Inferno. Things that we heard about in Inferno are are reversed when we get to Paradise. Um, and, and the two cantos are very much connected, of course, you know, whereas Purgatory uh, is kind of an anomaly. People are in transition there by definition. Well, everybody in both Paradiso and Inferno are in their final resting places, so to speak, at least until the Day of Judgment. Uh, and so we're supposed to see them as close parallels to one another. Okay? Uh, and then... We also have a couple controlling concepts I'll just mention briefly. Uh, first is the concept of the contemplative life. Peter 
S. Hawkins, who I'm holding up this book that I just finished by him called Dante's Testaments, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, it's a good one if you're looking to challenge yourself. It's not an easy read, uh, but it's it's accessible to the non-scholar. So if you want to be challenged a little bit and want some good stuff on Dante, I highly recommend Peter S. Hawkins' Dante's Testaments. But anyway, one of the things he talks about in here is how the monastic life is meant to be the way that we approach the entire Paradiso. If we're supposed to read the Inferno with horror and disgust and revulsion and, and just this graphic, despicable, very, very tangible narrative, and maybe we're supposed to read Purgatorio as a reflection on uh, pilgrimage, on dealing with our own sins, on, on sanctification, on that type of thing. Well, when we get to Paradiso, we're supposed to be drawn into a state of reflection, that's why there's some of the so much less description, so much less of everything else that would take away from that final moment and ascent to the beatific vision. Everything is meant to focus us on that, and what would be distracting to that is jettisoned. We're supposed to live within the contemplative life, and and Hawkins goes into a great deal of detail on that. The other thing, the the other controlling concept that we need to have in mind. Um, which I've alluded to a little bit already, is medieval cosmology or cosmography, however we want to say that. Um, of course, the most obvious one is the spheres, which mm-hmm. we've already talked about. Uh, but then there's a really wild moment that in uh, Paradiso 28 that deserves a little bit of, of, of thought. Um, and that's the what I would t- call the great inversion of the universe. Okay. okay. I don't know if you remember this. It's, it's a moment that just really messes with your mind, and you're not quite sure what to do with it. So uh, we've been ascending up and out for a long time now, okay. you know, ever since we started climbing down Satan, right? You know, we've been heading up the Mount, Mount Purgatory, and now, now we get to the moon, and then we head even farther out. And, and so we're getting farther and farther away from the center of the universe, right? Because in you know medieval cosmography, the Earth is the center of the mm-hmm. universe. We're dealing with a geocentric universe, so we're getting farther and farther and farther away. And then we hit Paradiso 28, and we get this very bizarre moment where, and I'm not even going to read it because it, it, it's just difficult to kind of wrap your minds around it. I don't think reading Dante's text here would be help, particularly helpful. Uh, you have to really kind of sit down and chew on it for a while, but where it entirely reverses. And now it's the earth that is the farthest away. And okay. God who is at the center. Okay. Uh and what do we do with that? I mean, it's just crazy. And, and you know, for most of us, I think we either just don't notice it or, or we kind of uh, move on without thinking about it. Uh, well, thankfully, Mr. C.S. Lewis is here to come oh, nice. to the rescue. Uh, so I know you're familiar, at least in name, with his book, The Discarded Image. I am familiar, at least in name. <laughs> uh, so The Discarded Image is another wonderful book to read. It's not specifically about Dante, but it's about Exactly what we're talking about here, medieval cosmography. Mm-hmm. How did the medieval mind view the universe? That's what the whole book is about? Yes. It's all about that. It's all about that. And it's wow. wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, and so there's just a couple quotes here I want to read from uh, C.S. Lewis and the Discarded Image, where he's talking about this concept. Uh, so he says, thus for Chalcidius, that's a philosopher he's referring mm-hmm. to, the geocentric universe, meaning Earth at the center, what we see up until Paradiso 28, is not in the least anthropocentric. 
If we ask why, nevertheless, the Earth is central, he has a very unexpected answer. It is so placed in order that the celestial dance may have a center to revolve around, in fact, as an aesthetic convenience for the celestial being. So that's our first clue within the medieval mindset. Earth appears at the center simply so that the divine beings in this in this dance that they're being moved in by God have some a center to revolve around. It's not because of the greatness of man or of earth or anything like that. But then C.S. Lewis talks about how this inverts itself uh, within the medieval mindset. So they, they would say, okay, literally, uh, physically, earth is at the center, but not spiritually. And he talks about that. He says, in the central castle in the Empyrean, so Dante's not making up this whole Empyrean thing, that's actually part of how the medievals thought about the universe, the emperor sits enthroned. In the lower heavens live the angelic knighthood. We on earth are outside the city wall. How, we ask, can the Empyrean be the center when it is not only on, but outside the circumference of the whole universe? Because... As Dante was to say more clearly than anyone else, the spatial order is the opposite of the spiritual, and the material cosmos mirrors, hence reverses, the reality, so that what is truly the rim seems to us the hub. We watch the spectacle of the celestial dance from its outskirts. Our highest privilege is to imitate it in such measure as we can. The medieval model is, if we may use the word, anthropoperipheral. We are creatures of the margin. Okay. Okay. Uh, so this is a difficult concept to get your mind around. So he's basically saying we're on, instead of being the center, we're the outside of everything. Exactly. We think we perceive ourselves at the center, but if we look at things as they really are, which is what happens in Paradiso 28, the entire thing gets inverted. Mm-hmm. We're not at the center. We are at the very outside. Now, think about the implications of this within the comedia, because this is, this is amazing. Uh, who is the center of the universe uh, before this inversion? Who's at the very center of the universe? Dante and humans. And no, no, Earth? no. It, more specific than that. Who, who's at the bottom of, of in the inferno? Oh, Satan? Satan. Satan is the center of the universe. Okay. And that is completely inverted. And now he is beyond the very edges of relevance. He doesn't even matter. He's been... He's uh, beyond the rim. He's beyond everything. Yes, he's, he's as far away in the universe as you can possibly get and still be in the universe. Okay. Satan is, rather than occupying this central place at the universe that everything expands outward from, uh, he doesn't even matter. And so it's a stunning reversal that shows us how things really are and who becomes the center at that point. Then, well, it's the beatific vision. It's God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's an astounding moment. And uh, again, one of those contradicting ideas that you have to keep in your mind that we've been heading up, but we've also been heading down and in. So we've, we've been going up and out with Dante, but all that time we've also been traveling towards the center of the universe. So he mentions it's sort of – like a mirror, so is it almost like it becomes a mirror universe to what we believe? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the mirror analogy is tough because within the spatial order, you know, God would then become like the largest rim outside, and so now God is the single point at the center of the universe, which say. is how God uh, Dante it, perceives it. So it's not it. an exact reflection, it's a reversal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So with all those concepts in mind, yeah. 
We're ready to now talk about some of the problems in Paradiso. Oh, the problems. Yes. Uh, so here, just to, in case people are worried about getting terribly lost, I want to talk about some of these problems of Paradiso, the difficulty of reading this. Um, and then I want to talk about uh, reading Paradiso in concert with the Inferno. Uh, and then maybe we can talk on a couple other points and uh, uh, spend a couple moments on the final, very famous final lines if we have time. Uh, all right. So, are you frustrated by the difficulty of Paradiso? Well, you're not alone. Uh, Dante is frustrated by the difficulty <laughs> of Paradiso, too. In fact, he begins by saying precisely that. Uh, in Inferno 1, you know, we get this moment where, or 1 through 12, we, we get this moment where he just kind of acknowledges how hard this is going to be. He says, The glory of the one who moves all things, penetrates all the universe, reflecting in one part more and in another less. I have been in his brightest shining heaven and seen such things that no man, once returned from there, has wit or skill to tell about. Okay. Spoilers, Dante. Yeah, we're on line six, and Dante just said, no man, which would include himself, has the wit or skill to talk about right. what he's about to spend the next 33 cantos talking about. Not okay? just that, uh, like 800 pages. Yeah, <laughs> it's a long time. For when our intellect draws near its goal and fathoms to the depths of its desire, the memory is powerless to follow. But still, as much of heaven's holy realm as I could store and treasure in my mind shall now become the subject of my song. So right there, he's kind of telling us, well, I'm about to talk about stuff that no one can actually talk about. Uh, I don't remember any of it, but I remember this tiny bit. <laughs> So we'll kind of try and talk about that and see how it goes. And you said the next 33 cantos, but you meant 99. The next No, no, no. This is the opening one of Paradiso. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I thought you said it's an opening of Inferno. Oh, I might have, but okay, if sorry. I did, I misspoke. Uh, and then we have that, that section I already read on the little boat, and, you yeah. know, where he's it's basically, you know, uh, I read it in context of the Ulysses narrative, uh, but again, just to repeat a couple of those lines where he's like, you know, you're in your little boat behind my big ship, and you might want to bail now because this could get a little tough for you. <laughs> I mean, he's basically throwing out the challenge to the readers that, he, you know, this might be too much. Yeah, you've been doing okay so far, but you might want to bail here before this gets really weird and difficult and everything. Um, there's a point later in the text where he just throws up his hands and says, and then I gave up and I couldn't do it. And I, you know, he, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he essentially says, I surrendered. You know, I, I, I can't, I have no words to describe what's coming up next. Um, we'll talk about what's going on there in just a second. But, of course, Dante uh, recognizes the futility of his own power, so he does what any sensible poet would do. He invokes the muses, all right? Now, this oh, is yeah. interesting, um, because we all know the muses are, right? They're the, the, the Greek goddesses who, you know, the, traditionally that's what poets do. Homer invokes the muses. Everybody invokes the muses. You want to write great poetry, you, know, you need those muses on your side. Uh, now, just as a little tangent here. Dante's invocation of the muses is very interesting throughout the Commedia, uh, because he invokes them six times, two in each canticle. Uh, the first one comes in Inferno 2, where he refers to, he calls on them, O muses, O high genius. And then, so he's not actually naming any of the muses yet, or, or anything like that. And then, 
in Inferno 33 or 32, where he's heading down to Cossetus in uh, Circle 9, he refers to those high ladies and kind of sings their praises a little bit of, of, of the good deeds that they've done. So he gets a little more specific. Okay, notice the pattern there. Beginning of the canticle, and then right when we reach the penultimate moment, or the ultimate moment of, of the canticle. So as we're about to head down to Cossetus and see Lucifer, then we need a, you know, we need a second helping of the mm-hmm. muses. Okay, same thing in Purgatorio. Uh, in Canto 1, he invokes the muses, but this time he names one of them. He names Calliope, right? Oh, I remember. Yeah. And then uh, in uh, Purgatorio t- 29, where what's he doing at that point? He's heading up to Eden, to the uh, terrestrial heaven, you know, the the paradise on earth, right? He invokes the muses again. He calls them most holy virgins, and this time he names Urania. Okay? So the muses have been good so far, but they're not going to be good enough for Paradiso. And so what's he got to do? Who are you going to call? Apollo. <laughs> not Ghostbusters. Going to call Apollo. So he what, says... The, the god of the sun? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's connected to the muses okay. within uh, uh, Roman mythology. So he says, I set my course for waters never traveled. My nerva fills my sails. Apollo steers, and all nine muses point the bears to me, which is a reference to them pointing out the stars because he's navigating oh, yeah. a boat in the metaphor. So now he not only needs a muse or a few muses, he needs all nine plus Apollo, and then we're back in business. Okay? But we know from our pattern that if he's invoked them once, Already in Paradiso, it's going to come again. And we know from our pattern that this is going to come at the end. And indeed it does in Paradiso 33. Uh, but this is quite spectacular because who does Dante invoke in Paradiso 33 as he prepares to uh, ascertain the beatific vision? Not the muses, not Apollo. He invokes God himself to help him write that poetry. Uh-oh. You see the steady ascent yeah. until we get there. It's an extraordinary pattern to, to recognize. Okay. So we've already talked about the vagueness that's going on in Paradise. So we've talked about this kind of what I would call metaphorical physicality where he is on these spheres and he is seeing people there. But yet it's this mediated vision. Uh, he, he's not actually seeing them as they really are in, in paradise, they're appearing to him in a way that he's able to kind of grasp what's going on. Okay. So what's going on here with all of this? Why is Paradiso so, so hard? You know, why does Dante repeatedly stress that I have no words? And then he continues to keep on talking. You know, what, what is going on? Why to answer your question earlier, does he end in that moment of the beatific vision rather than, and then I got back home, mm-hmm. and I started working on my book, you know, very Bilbo Baggins <laughs> style. You know, why does it end where it ends? And the answer to that is to go back to our controlling narrative of the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians twelve two through four. Uh, I'll read just a little bit of this again. So he says, "I know a man uh, who fourteen years ago was caught up in the third heaven," and then he he kind of. Talks about that, and then in verse 4 he says, And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, you might think when hearing that verse, okay, if Paul says you can't 
uh, tell these things. You may not utter them. What, what is Dante doing telling and uttering these things? Mm-hmm. Well, Dante is actually reading Second Corinthians 12 and that narrative. Uh, he's importing it into the text by way of Augustine's interpretation of that text. Okay? So this is very interesting. Uh, for Augustine... Paul's words when he says, cannot tell, you may not utter, don't represent an interdiction. They represent an impossibility. Okay? Uh, uh, So he's not being commanded, don't utter them. He just literally cannot. He literally cannot. And so what looked at from that perspective, what what Paradiso becomes is an exercise in the ineffable, the unspeakable. It's an exercise in speaking about that which you cannot speak about. It's another paradox for us. Uh, Peter Hawkins, in in this book I mentioned earlier, uh, has a wonderful essay on this entire topic, and I just want to read one paragraph out of it. So he says, if we push this kinship of accommodation further and say that Dante intends us to read the Paradiso as if it were an extended biblical anthropomorphism, then two conclusions may be drawn. You have to read the whole essay to get what he's referring to there, of course, uh, and it's well worth your time. Two conclusions may be drawn. So, from reading it from this perspective, the first is that the canticle's claim to truth does not lie in any supposed mimetic correspondence, that would mean, mimetic means uh, imitative, a correspondence between its language and the ineffable utter, other. Rather, the poem itself is a metaphor whose meaning wholly transcends its literal terms. Okay, I mean, that's a mouthful there. What Hawkins is saying there for that first conclusion is that what Dante's trying to get us to do is say, Yes, here's the literal events of the poem, and I go to the sphere and all of that, but yet he's forcing the reader to be not satisfied by what he literally writes and to look for something beyond the text. He's pushing the reader beyond his text here. Okay? Second... The poem is a metaphor of a certain kind, for when the Holy Spirit speaks in Scripture of God's hands or feet, when, that is, the Spirit uses glaringly inappropriate language, it is precisely to remind us that there is finally no human speech adequate to the divine reality. Thus, for Augustine, words that do not work on a literal level are a sign that God is more fully expressed in our awed silence than in anything our voices can sound. Such language calls the reader to go beyond the letter of every text. If read aright, therefore, metaphor introduces an analogy between our speech and God's word that will of necessity force the reader to see the insufficiency of language. To speak of the strong right arm of God is to expose the fiction of metaphor. Words about the ineffable sabotage sabotage their own literal meaning in order to draw attention to what cannot be spelled in letters at all but can only be attended to and longed for. So in other words, what he's saying there is that, for example, Scripture talks about God's strong right arm. Well, he says that literally sabotages its own language because it's so absurd to try and think you can sum up God's power in the image of a right arm that it forces the metaphor to literally collapse in on itself in the mind of the reader and be forced into contemplation on that which cannot be expressed in words. And Dante is doing the exact same thing in Paradiso. This is an extended exercise in Augustinian ineffability through the lens of St. Paul's vision of Paradise in Second Corinthians 12. So he ends abruptly to show that 
he could not say anything else. Exactly. You are left with nothing but the vision of God. Okay. And there's nothing else in the text that could possibly follow that. That ha- it, The text collapses on itself. Okay. Uh, it, it ends where it does because what comes next in the text is no text at all, but rather this Augustinian silence of ineffability. Okay. Ah, that's pretty interesting. Which then figures into what we were talking about earlier with why why does Dante stress the contemplative life? Why does he place the contemplatives in the highest sphere at Saturn? Well, because this has to be ultimately it has to be contemplative. Mm-hmm. There's there's nothing else that you can do but collapse into contemplation. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a good stuff. Uh so uh, maybe this is not as interesting a follow-up, but just maybe a couple notes then on the, on the comparison of Paradiso to the Inferno. Uh, just a couple things to point out there as for why that's so worthwhile. Um, first, we have this whole concept of Satan versus God, mm-hmm. you know, as the two points, and uh, Purgatory also ascends towards. The the terrestrial paradise Eden at the top of the mountain, but yet again, that's different. It's not as sharp of a parallel as we find between Paradiso and Inferno, where there's God on the one side and the devil on the other. And when we get to the bottom of Inferno, Satan is literally frozen in the ice. He's powerless to move. He's beating his wings. Um, and not accomplishing anything except freezing himself in further, right? Because mm-hmm. remember that that's what's creating the very cold, icy conditions there at the bottom of Inferno. Whereas God is moving everything. He is immovable. Uh, he does not himself move, but yet he is moving everything around him. You know, you have those great final lines that... that um, are, are just incredible here where, you know, the love that moves the sun and the other stars is that God is moving the entire universe around him and Satan can't even get out of the ice, you know? Uh, and so it just becomes an exercise in the, on, on the one hand, they're set up as a comparison, but yet the comparison is so absurd that again, it collapses in on itself. We can get our hands around Satan in vivid, lurid detail. We, we can note the uh, different colors of his three faces. We can pick out what sinner is in each mouth. We, we note the matted quality of his fur. We feel it as we mm-hmm. climb up and down him, and uh, we can't even begin. And so Satan can be wholly encompassed in words within Dante's uh, cosmography, whereas God, we can't even get close. I got I got something here. Just to go along with what you're saying about uh, God being unmoved, here's a quick quote. I, I have a whole... I took out this whole part that seems sort of like a creed that Dante said, but I won't read the whole thing. He just says, I believe in one God, loved, desired by all creation, soul, eternal, who moves the turning heavens, himself unmoved. Exactly. Yeah. And that that's very much what we're trying what we see there, whereas um Satan is of course the opposite. He moves himself, he's got his wings going and he's chewing and doing all this stuff, but he moves absolutely nothing else, and therein lies his powerlessness. Uh, we also have this fantastic um uh, contrast between the prophecies that appear in Inferno and those that appear in Paradise. Is this what I asked you about? Remember I sent you that message one day? I remember the message. Okay, I don't remember I'll, what you. I asked. have it right here, just in case we were going to bring this up. But I asked you, should I be taking anything away from the fact that the dead people Dante comes across in Paradiso can often read his mind? Is that what we're going to talk about right now? Oh, uh, 
Maybe and, a little bit. Yeah. And then they answer the questions that he's asking in his own mind. So this is this happens continuously where he's thinking something and then somebody answers his question without even him speaking it out loud. And you said there is some significance in paradise. Knowledge is perfect as is the communion of the saints. Both of these are intended as a sharp contrast to Inferno, where any type of foreknowledge is highly limited and flawed, and everyone is self-focused. And you said, for example, in Inferno, we saw predictions of Dante's exile. In Paradiso, those predictions are confirmed, but come with a larger picture showing how God will bring good from them. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm Okay, so, so you, take it away. You nailed it there. Well, just with- a little question and answer that we had on yeah, Facebook. A little, little catechesis. Uh so let me let me just I just have to get to the right spot here in Paradiso. While you're finding it, I, yeah, I do think it's interesting how because you gave me a heads up that parad, a much of Paradiso works as a counterpart to Inferno it and does, counterpoint. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, so in, in Inferno, of course, we have all these predictions of Dante's exile, starting with you know maybe the one one of the more famous ones is Chiacho the hog who's sitting down there with the gluttonous in Inferno 6 and uh, he's just wallowing in his own filth and everything and it's generally disgusting and he makes this prediction that of course we, we know comes true because uh, Dante the poet is we just have to remember here for the purpose of this that Dante the poet is writing uh, much later than Dante the pilgrim the character in the story is so the going poet the is post-exile yes okay the, the pilgrim is pre-exile uh Okay, so Chiacho, the whole, you know, the whites and the blacks are these two parties uh, within in Florence are, are going to uh, fight, and the whites, that would be Dante's party, gets kicked out. You're going to be exiled, and he just, you know, has doom and gloom for Dante. Uh, and this repeats itself in, in various degrees several times throughout uh, the Inferno. And then we get this great moment in Paradiso. Uh, 17, where he's talking to his ancestor, Cassiaguda, and uh, he's asking him about some of these prophecies a little bit. Oh, yeah. And uh, Cassiaguda has a a very interesting answer for it. I love this. He says, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think I know where you're going. I think I remember this part. I definitely remember the the part. I don't remember what's said, but if it's the prophecy I'm thinking of, I love this part. It says, The public will, as always, blame the party that has been wronged. Venge- and this is Cassia Guda prophesying about what's going to happen to Dante. Venden- vengeance that truth demands, although she'll yet bear witness to the truth. In other words, you are going to be kicked out, but yet mm-hmm. truth will win out. You shall be forced to leave behind those things you love most dearly, and this is the first arrow the bow of your exile will shoot. And you will know how salty is the taste of others' bread. Interesting tangential side note there. Uh, I was listening to a course on the Comedia, and what the instructors were saying is that Florence is actually famous for how salty their bread is. And this is a reference to how Dante's going to be leaving Florence, and so he's not going to get to taste that very distinctive Florentine bread. So just just to file that away for jeopardy someday (laughs) how hard the road that takes you down and up the stairs of others homes but what will weigh you down the most will be the despicable senseless company whom you shall have to bear in that sad veil and he goes on for a while uh like that but then we get the other side of this is starting in uh uh skipping ahead to line 94 he says then he said uh, then Cassia Guda said, Son, you have my gloss of what was told you. Now you see the snares that be- hide behind a few years' time. In other words, yeah, a few years from now, your life is going to be in bad shape. 
No envy toward your neighbors should you bear, for you will have a future that endures far longer than their crime and punishment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's what's wonderful about this is that it doesn't contradict anything Chiacho or any of the other guys say in Inferno. They weren't lying to Dante. But Cassiagouda has this much broader picture that you're going to you're going to experience this fame. Your your life isn't going to be this waste. It's going to be redeemed. Uh, and it's it's incredible. Yeah, this is exactly what I was thinking you were going to say because if I'm reading this correctly, his ancestor is saying this uh, comedy that you're writing is going to make you famous, and it's yes. going to your name is going to live long beyond all the other people in your town. Exactly. But so, uh, you know, we know that he is writing this post-exile. So when he, in quotes, prophesizes, prophesizes, yeah, about that, that's that's nothing because that actually happened. But yeah. he had no way of knowing that how big his fame would get at this point in time. Oh yeah, I mean Dante dies in exile just shortly after Paradiso is finished. So my question for you is: <laughs> Is it possible that this was a legitimate vision? Oh, see, now that that's one of the interesting sidebars in Dante's scholarship, because 99% of Dante's scholars are going to say no. Right. Uh, you will find people, though, who do try and argue that this is a literal vision that Dante had, and he actually experienced all of this. I mean, some parts can't be true, because Ulysses is a fictional character, so he couldn't have actually met that character. Right. But... Is it possible some of what he's writing down he experienced and he made it into a narrative? I mean, you could make that argument. Some people do. The Um, fame thing seems like a giveaway. It's crazy. It's crazy. Because doesn't he also prophesy in this poem that he'll eventually be – his exile will be revoked? Uh, I don't that, know if he's that specific with it, but yeah, it's something about it's it's more along those lines of what what I was just reading that you know your fame will went, went out and all of that. Okay. Um, I'm not sure who said this originally, but one of the famous lines in Dante scholarship is that the uh, uh, greatest fiction of the poem is that it's not a work of fiction. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, is true. I'm not saying I wholeheartedly believe this. Yeah, but that one passage started to win me over a little bit. Right. Where do you land? Uh, I, no, I, I don't think so. Um, but it's it's tough. I mean, and this is something Hawkins gets into in his book a lot, is the relationship between the comedy and scripture and how Dante is almost acting, if you read between the lines, as though he's writing, you know, the Bible too or whatever. It he's, does. Well, I yeah. said this in the first episode we did uh, on, in uh, yeah, in Encircling the Inferno. Um I feel sometimes when I'm reading this as if I'm reading scripture, and I don't know if that's sacrilegious or heretical to right. say that. I don't. I know it's not scripture, yeah, but it feels different than other writings. Dante walks a very fine line there, you know, and so yeah, I think it's not an area that scholarship can really speculate on. But I think from a faith perspective, you know. Is there any of this where God did speak to him about that? And I I think that's a legitimate thing to speculate on. I I don't know if we have any proof. I I don't think you can prove it one way or the other. So did you say where you land? I I don't know where I land. Just pick one. I'll Uh, side with fiction, but it's interesting that he could predict his fame. uh, I'd say fiction, but that God was working through him in places. You know. uh, Inspired, you could say. You could say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the infallible work of Dante. You know, it, it's kind of like there's an interesting parallel. I, I, I'm i not a huge uh, 
NBA fan or whatever, but as I was reading this Hawkins book as well, the NBA finals were going on. Mm-hmm. And there was this whole controversy on sports talk uh, because LeBron James, you know, with the Cavaliers here were in the finals, was asked something. I forget the exact question, but he was asked, are, are you the best player in the NBA? And he said, yeah, I am. And pretty much most people agree that he is. But there's this whole debate. Of, well, should he be saying that? Yeah. Well, that whole debate has actually been going on in Dante's scholarship for hundreds of years because Dante essentially is doing that same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the, the audacity yeah. that he takes on. There's a great moment that Hawkins has a whole essay on in uh, Purgatorio where you remember this whole procession that's taking place with the mm-hmm. uh, and uh, at one point in the procession, the seraphim appear. And he makes some reference to how, well, they kind of looked a little bit like Ezekiel's, but in this detail, they're like John's, though, because the seraphim are, are described in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. Except he doesn't say, in this detail, they're like John's. He says, in this detail, John is with me. In other words, this is what the seraphim look like, and... John agrees with me on that one. Not, not, not I agree with John. John is with – it's this incredibly presumptuous throwaway sentence. Okay, so you've obviously done a lot of research on Dante yeah. and this work. Yes. Where do you – is he humble or is he audacious? I, I think he's humble. I really do. I, I uh, you know Maybe that's something I would change my mind on as I read more. Um, I read this book and I, I think it's something that on the surface – a lot of it seems like arrogance. Just like on the surface, the Inferno seems like a revenge fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then you get into it, and it's not. Like, when you start to really dig down, it's not. Uh, for example, on the revenge fantasy thing, I mean, Dante hates Pope Boniface VIII or whatever, uh, who is the Pope who's dead when Dante the Poet is writing, but he's alive at the time Dante the Pilgrim is uh, making yeah. his pilgrimage. And he's the Pope who was at least partially responsible for Dante being exiled. So he hates Pope Boniface. Uh, and Pope Boniface is, you know, he's not in the Inferno yet, but Dante makes it very clear he's going to wind up in Circle 8 with the Simonists, uh, who are, you know, the popes are upside down in the evil baptismal fonts and everything. And you're like, yeah, he, he, go get him, you know. He just hates Pope Boniface VIII. But then you get to the beginning of Purgatorio, and you, you don't, this detail is not explicit in the text, but you can piece it together through scholarship where you remember the angels rowing people to the shores of Purgatorio from mm-hmm. the Tiber. And Dante's talking to, to his friend who he meets who just got off the boat with the angel. And he says, oh, these last few months, the angel, anybody who wants to come has been welcome onto the boat. Whereas before that, the angel was selecting people. Um, Anybody who wants to come is is now welcome on the boat, and just tons of people have been showing up in Purgatorio. Well, and that's all the details we get in the text. But what's going on behind the scenes is at the time the uh, the, the the poem is set, Pope Boniface the Eighth has just declared this period of jubilee or something mm-hmm. like that, where people are welcome to make a pilgrimage to Rome and and. Uh, are able to have their say, you know, uh, there's absolution. And I forget all the details that go along with it, but essentially Dante is crediting Pope Boniface VIII for all the souls who are now able to come and be purified on the mountain. It's this wonderful moment where Dante reinterprets himself. Mm-hmm. And so isn't this revenge fantasy? No, you know, and then he puts some of his enemies on, in Purgatorio and Paradiso. Uh, and it becomes something more like if it starts there, he starts it there intentionally and then he, develops his own thought on those issues. And I think the same thing is true of, of um, 
the issue of arrogance and, and humility, where I don't think he's being arrogant. I think this is an old man uh, writing at the very end of his life who is looking back on it and looking back on all of his failures and being able to reinterpret them through the eyes of age and maturity and wisdom. Uh, and, you know, like I said, he dies just a few months after finishing Paradiso. Man, that's L- great. Literally. I don't think I realized he was old when he was writing this. I, I think, I don't know why, but whatever I picture him, I picture him sort of like how he is on the cover, which is, I don't think he looks very old on the cover. Well, of course, the but Pilgrim Dante is not old. How old, how old would you say Pilgrim Dante is, just oh, as a guess? Does he? Does it say what year? I always forget the year Dante was born. Well, um, while you're looking that up, the reason I had asked you the humble versus arrogant question is I wanted to know, is he the type of person that would say, I'm going to be famous from this? And it sounds like you're saying he's not that type of person that would say that typically. Well, I mean, you'll find people who argue that he is. Um, for me, he reads more as somebody who sees his ambitions and his life as ended in failure from a human perspective and has a trust in God uh, that he, that it's not going to end that way. Okay. You know, that, that's how I interpreted him. So I know you're still looking that up. Uh, let me- yeah, so he was born in 1265. Okay. So I believe he is um, 35 when he's taking the pilgrimage. Uh, he's 55 when he dies, which is like okay. a thousand in the medieval period. <laughs> is that really? I, well, I mean, lifespan isn't, okay. uh, isn't as old as it or wasn't so great back then. I have, uh, I have some quick questions for you, but I want to make sure you get through all your notes first. So I'll save these for the end. You know, the last thing that I wanted to say in terms of contrasting Inferno with Paradiso actually ties into what we were just saying uh, about the way that uh, and this is another way that the Commedia kind of reads like scripture is that Dante reinterprets himself and it's not dissimilar to how when we read the Old Testament we have to read it as Christians in the light of the New Testament when you read the ideas and theology presented in the Inferno you have to read them in light of the ideas and theology presented in Purgatorio and Paradiso. Mm. And one of the fascinating examples of this is that in Inferno, there's this seeming rigidity to the virtuous pagans, those who uh, died before Christ uh, lived. So, you know, like Virgil's there. And these are people who are, were told through no fault of their own, except that they didn't know Christ. They're stuck in limbo. They're not suffering, but they're stuck there. And it's this almost rigid iron law on the way that's presented. But then we get, and I think it is the Emperor Trajan, not Justinian. I think I, I misspoke that earlier. But we get this Emperor Trajan, uh, or Justinian. I'm gonna, just going to say Trajan if I'm wrong. I'm sorry. But we get this emperor in Paradiso who was a pre-Christian emperor. And he's there. And we, and we find out, and then Dante retells the story that's not original to him. It's part of legend that uh, Trajan was resurrected and then baptized in the church. And, and then there's another guy there, too, um, who was among the Trojans and Troy, obviously a fictional character, but, but mm-hmm. pre-Christ. And Dante asks about them. And so we get this idea that, yes, there is the way that things work, and it's not a free-for-all. But yet we get this picture that God's grace has the ability to go beyond uh, the rigid limits of the in, that we saw in the Inferno. It's a remarkable moment uh, in terms of Dante interacting with himself and reinterpreting himself and showing the growth of his own, the, at least Dante, the, the pilgrim's theology and thought throughout his journey and his pilgrimage. It's an incredible moment. It's, there's a lot in yeah, here. Yeah. There's a lot happening. He's a genius. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Probably the greatest work of fiction ever written. Uh, 
so we know he's a Christian. Yes. We know this is fiction. Yes. Would you label this Christian fiction? Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or why not? So uh, it's like the Christian fiction. So well, I, I suppose you got to give Jesus's parables a little something there. So I go on Goodreads and I label this Christian fiction. You think that's okay? I think it's okay. All right. Uh, you and I talked about this off the air, but. There's a few times where I read Dante out loud, either to my wife or to my baby, just for fun, yeah. as I'm taking care of her. Uh, especially those parts in the Inferno. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's what you want to read to the baby. Um, it feels different when you're reading it out loud. And you said you had a similar experience when you were reading it out loud to your wife. Yeah. Um, what's up? Why is it? What's different about reading it in our own heads and reading it out loud? Well, I think it's the nature of poetry. Um Especially, you know, not maybe not so much with Dante, but you know, you look at like old timey poets like uh, Homer. Oh, Homer, you know, whenever he was writing his thing, uh, it was never intended to be written or to to, to be read. It was intended to be performed. Uh, and poetry has that quality, and that's something that you know, when you eventually read Paradise Lost, that's something that Milton tries to uh, imitate a little bit. This whole idea of that. Uh, and I think C.S. Lewis talks about this in his preface to Paradise Lost, which is well worth reading when you when you uh, get around to that. It's a short read, but it's very good. Uh, the idea that you know poetry is meant to be heard, mm-hmm. not only in your head, you know, reading it on a page, but that it's meant to. There's a performance aspect to it. I suppose it's similar to how you know you. And that's not to say you can't get a lot of value out of reading in your head. I mean, I'm not, most of the time I'm reading Dante or whatever. I'm not or different medieval poetry. I'm not reading it out loud. So there's a lot of value there. It's similar to how um, you can get a lot of value and you should sit down and read uh, Shakespeare's plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, they're meant to be seen and, and experienced as a performance, not as a literary experience. Now, that's not to say that there isn't value in, in, in reading them that way. And in fact, there might for us in our, you know, with the evolution of language, there might be more value in some ways because we can stop and figure out what all these weird words mean and everything as we're reading Shakespeare. But at the end of the day, uh, seeing Hamlet is different than reading Hamlet. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not a perfect analogy, but something similar is going on with poetry. Um, so Dante in his original writing put rhyming into this mm-hmm. every first and third line. Oh, he invented his own rhyme scheme. Well, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. So when it translates to English... It's not a, a typical rhyming scheme that we're familiar with, oh, so, so much so that you can almost forget the fact that it's rhyming as you're reading through those lines. Right. So would you call this rhyming scheme subtle, or would you just say it's just unique in Dante's own style? Well, very few English translations have tried to replicate the Terza Rima. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't. Ciardi uh, uh, rhymes, but he doesn't do the Terza Rima Oh, okay, sorry. Scheme. Okay, so uh, yeah, I was going to say, the, one I, the translation I read was by John Ciardi, he does rhyme the first and third line. Right. And it, there's not a real good rhythm to it. And so, like I said, as I'm reading through there, it's not always obvious and apparent. Exactly. But what's Dante's rhyming scheme like? Dante's rhyming scheme would be ABA. Okay. So, first and third line of the first uh, third set rhyme, and the second line doesn't. Okay. Then BAB. Okay. Okay. Or no, then, well, let me think. A, B, A, B, C, B, D, C, D. So, in other words, the second line will rhyme with uh, <laughs> the, 
or maybe I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes. I might be botching it a uh, little okay, bit. But it's, but it, it's, it's something where like intricate first and third will then rhyme with the second of the next tert set, okay. and then okay, it, you, you know, so they're all intermingled at that point. Oh wow, yeah, that's pretty. Wow, but that's really good. A lot of po- uh, poetic translations will write in blank verse, which is unrhymed. Yes, uh, meter, and so that's like I was reading from uh, Mark Muse's translation earlier, and he he doesn't rhyme for the most part. In some ways, I almost would. I mean, I really like the John Ciardi translation, but because he has to go out of his way to try to rhyme, yeah, I wonder what's being lost in the translation, right? So, and I I guess if I'm reading it, I'd rather. Again, I liked what I read, but. I don't know. It might have been better to have had one that's what like you said is blank verse. Yeah, yeah. just because I would rather have the real meaning over words that happen to sound similar. Yeah, it's just like picking a Bible translation. Exactly. You know, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. But yeah, I, I really like Mark Mace's translation. I haven't finished it yet, but uh, I like his a lot. I like um, uh, Anthony Esselin's a great deal. Uh, he's fantastic. And uh, if you want notes that are. They they are scholarly, but also have a more devotional feel to them. Anthony Esselin is a, a practicing Catholic, uh, very devout, and uh, his notes are wonderful from that perspective. He gets a really devo- a strong devotional flair throughout his notes. Who uh, This one that you just picked up that you said you're in the middle of, who writes this one? Uh, this is Mark Muse's translation. Okay, and then, I, like I said, I read John Ciardi's. One thing I really appreciate and recommend about this translation that i read by crd is that every canto started with an introduction so if you get into it and you're confused the introduction will explain exactly what's about to happen so you can stay on top of things and then there are notes just like a study bible uh at the end of every canto so it was really helpful to me does the one that you're in the middle of have that kind of thing yep yep musa has really great great notes and good introductions excellence uh has introductions too but they tend to be like one sentence long so they're nowhere near as helpful uh that's one where if you're familiar with the poem it's it's nice to have that but then again don't let that be the deciding factor either in reading that poem because you have the internet of course right you know if all else fails hop on to spark notes or something or schmoop or any of those kind of student help sites okay. uh, there's no shame in doing that when reading tough literature i do that all the time nice uh last closing thought for me and i'll let you take us home with your closing thought so one thing that really resonated with me is in uh, the final cantos, we've got God there at the center. All the people are just, I mean, you look at Beatrice and she just can't take her eyes off of God once she moves on and is right. no longer the escort for Dante. Um, and, you know, it got me thinking, a lot of times I'm worried about heaven personally. Yeah. Just from a human perspective, is it going to be boring? What are we going to do forever? I sometimes daydream that maybe we'll be able to travel the universe since we've got you know this uh redeemed creation that to go check out so there'll be some fun things to do go do our jobs that god gives us and explore the universe but then this book this uh, this narrative really helped bring me back around to the focus on god and and realize you know i'm here thinking from a human perspective flawed i don't know how amazing it's going to be to be in the presence of god right and why would I, when I'm there, why do would I even care about doing anything else but be in his presence? And and this really helped me just personally to remember how amazing our God is and how much it, I mean, just we're going to be in awe of him one day and nothing else will matter. Right. So. Yeah. And yeah. It, it is important to note, too, that within the concept of the beatific vision, Dante is, uh, this is not 
just as we talked about, like with some of the redeemed heaven and earth stuff, Dante anticipates that. But of course, this is paradise. This is not the new heaven and the new earth yet. Exactly. Yeah, right. That, that is a good good clarification. So, so give us a closing thought and I'll hit that music. Oh, just a couple closing thoughts. Um, first of all, now you've finished Dante, everyone. You pat yourselves on the back. Good work, everybody. Uh, and you might be thinking, okay, what do I do next What's with next? Dante? What, what do I do next? Well, you know, maybe maybe just finishing it was enough. Uh, and there's no shame in saying, I, I, I am sick of this medieval literature for a while. I need to be done and read something else. Uh, however, the one thing I would point out is that Dante is, as I think most great books are, uh, the law the law of diminishing returns does not apply to great literature, and that's especially true of Dante. Uh, if you read this again, you will get more out of it than you got mm-hmm. out of it the second time. In fact, the, what many Dante scholars will say, and I think that, again, this is true of a lot of great literature, is that when you have finished the poem, you are ready to read the poem. Okay. You know, and that might sound intimidating, but, you know, and there's no pressure there or anything, but just I would say uh, this is a poem that's worth revisiting, and, and one that um, if you're completely satisfied with your first reading, that's great. Uh, and you should be proud of yourself for finishing it. It's a tough work, but there's more. I mean, there's way more than we've even begun to cover here. Uh, and Dante, you can get something out of him by just reading a few lines, and you can get something out of him by studying him your entire life. There's just an enormous amount in there, and wherever you fall in between those two, uh, it's a poem that you will never exhaust uh, the amounts out there. And there's a lot of great resources. I mentioned that Peter Hawkins book. Um, but there's other stuff that if that one sounded intimidating, even from the one paragraph I read or whatever, there's stuff like Dante Worlds out there, which is a good kind of lay-level guide. Uh, Peter Lightheart, who's an author I, I appreciate a great deal, a Presbyterian author, has a, a book on um, – oh, I forget what it's called, but he has a book on Dante. Uh, Rod Dreher, well, the book I really want to recommend is a book by a guy named Rod Dreher uh, who wrote a book called Dante Can Save Your Life. Uh, and I, this came out earlier this year, and it, it's absolutely spectacular. It's half um, half a study on Dante and half a autobiography, yeah, yeah, memoir on him. It's about how uh, he's somebody who was evangelical, then he became Catholic, and now he's Eastern Orthodox. Uh, he moved back home to Louisiana, which brought back a lot of painful memories from his childhood for him. He wound up uh, having psychosomatic symptoms, so he's he's physically ill, like unable to do hardly anything. Uh, he hadn't read Dante since high school or college or whatever. He's browsing through Barnes and Noble. He picks up the Inferno, starts reading it, and he's just overcome by God speaking to him through this work. And it's an extraordinary book. Um, so there's stuff like that out there uh, that's well worth your time and well worth checking out. Uh, but the other thing I would say, just as a final, final thought, and I promise this is my final thought, um, is that good literature is worth knowing not only for the value it has in and of itself, but for the value um, that it has when you're reading other things. Uh, uh, there's an article I've been meaning to write for the website which I haven't gotten around to writing yet, and hopefully I will get around to writing it, though I, I make no promises. Um, but that Pope Francis's latest encyclical, Laudato Si, uh, which is you know the environmental encyclical, and everybody's been, been focusing on that aspect of it. Uh, but he actually quotes in there Dante's final lines from the Commedia. Hmm. And just as we talked about imported narratives within Dante, uh, there's a lot of significance that I believe that the Holy Father is importing into his encyclical through his quoting of Dante, specifically trying to bring us back to this 
medieval model that C.S. Lewis talks about in the discarded image and see, not in a literal scientific sense, of course, but in a spiritual sense to help us see that, to quote Pope Francis, uh, Liney says repeatedly in the encyclical that everything is connected. Uh, and that's something Dante tells us. And so one of the things that the benefit of learning great literature like this is then you sit down to read the Pope or whatever, and you hear that line, and you're able to appreciate it so much more and import so many of those ideas that maybe Pope Francis is referencing mm-hmm. without you even knowing. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Dante, of course, uh, extraordinarily influential. And uh, now that you've read this, you'll, you'll find him cropping up all over the place. Amazing, Ben. Great job. What, what a fun little series we had. Thanks for taking us through that. And again, in case you haven't had a chance to check them out, go watch Ben on YouTube at the Sci-Fi Christian's YouTube page, where Ben did weeks and weeks of Dante study. I bet you, how many how many videos do you think there are? 15? Oh, probably at least. Yeah. Uh, they're about 20 minutes long, and he uh, takes you through chunks of the cantos. But yeah, they were helpful to me during that process, so definitely send you there totally different conversations I, there were yeah. some things i almost want to bring up here that you talked about there but you know a couple different mediums maybe we can come back to that eventually oh, maybe yeah. someday when i'm looking for episodes i can put together all your inferno videos and make, a, make it its own episode but yeah we'll see but uh that's all from here i'm matt anderson i am ben d bono and we are the sci-fi christians signing off you made it I cannot believe it. If you're listening to this right now, if you're listening to this right now, write us at feedback at the sci-fi-christian.com with the subject line, I made it. it. I just want to know who actually listened to this. Right. This is my chance to know, are these best of the best episodes worth it? I'm trying to, this is a service to you listeners because at the end of the year, I'm going to have you vote on what was the actual best episode. This could be the winner. Of our entire history, this could be the this could be it. I started saying this at the beginning of this episode. And I got a little distracted, but honestly, reading this book is one of the best things we did in the last ten years for me. I agree. You've read it before, but for me, uh, it was a book I may have never picked up if not for the Sci-Fi Christian. So, thank you for your encouragement. And You're welcome. Thanks for guiding us through each yeah. of those three episodes. I haven't re-listened to them since 2015. I will now go ahead and re-listen to them in preparation for posting this episode, but. I love it. This is something I should revisit. I, if I'm going to claim it's one of my favorite books, I should revisit it. I agree. All right. I'm going to hit the music. Ben, thank you. You're welcome. Thank sure. you for letting me do the Frankenstein episode. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's a good idea, but we'll give it a chance. So, it's an idea. Listeners, email me right now. If you're here hearing this, feedback at thesuffercushion.com. I made it in the if, subject line. If we don't get any I made it emails, I agree to never do another super episode again. Okay, thank you. Well, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DiBono. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Uh, goodbye. Yeah, have you ever done an episode where you felt like we should ask people if they're actually getting to the end of this? <laughs> yes. I never have. I will say, though, I don't know if I'll put this in the air, but I listen to uh, Nostalgia Wrestling Podcasts yeah. where it's like, creators from the 90s talking about what was their plan for the stories they're writing yeah and recently one of the hosts wasn't available um and so they just piecemealed just like what we just did right right i mean i don't even know i didn't listen to i deleted it but i saw the episode was like six hours long and it wasn't even an edited compilation it was just what we just did where it's like boom 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 it's the best of and i i just i was not interested in that wow i think you are kind of like long form is very popular Okay. You should listen to Joe. Joe Rogan is fascinating. Okay. Like his Alex Jones interview was four and a half hours long. I've li- I've listened to the whole thing twice. I mean, I, I have listened to Hardcore History. 
Yeah, similar. Content. And those are long. Yeah. Um, in the past, I was very into long podcasts, and now I think I do like an hour or less. So I have a prediction. Okay. If you get a new job in the future, and he has a longer commute, oh, you will suddenly be into longer podcasts. This, I, I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but this totally makes makes sense because when we started the podcast, I was working someplace different than I work right now. Yeah. And my commute currently, eight minutes long. Your preference is not based on any true change except your commute time. Well, I, I don't know if that's 100% true, but I will be honest and say uh, on a perfect traffic day at my old job, I it took me at least 30 minutes. But you yeah. can imagine during rush hour, there were no perfect 30-minute right. drives. And if it was snowing, which was often, over an hour or more. Right. So I needed those long podcasts. Yeah. So you're right. I yep. mean, it could have something to do with that, but I, no, I, I don't want to go all in and say that's the only reason. That's the 99% of the reason. Okay. Well, this is a very interesting conversation, but I think I should end this. This is. Have I never told, I've had that theory for a long time. Have about I never me told, or about yeah, you? About you. No. What, what do you mean exactly? What do you mean you've had that theory about me? <laughs> that, that, that your preference for shorter episodes is tied to your commute. But when you say short episodes from a podcast or for our podcast? For our podcast. No, I've because never heard you say your that. Because your overall preference for podcasts goes into what your preference. And I'm not saying you're wrong. I, yeah. like, I, li- I like our cadence. We, we go long when we need to. Yes. But I, I think for the most part, we have a solid length of episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the reason you went away from long form is because you got a shorter commute. Wow, I've never heard you say that before. No, I've had that theory for years. Interesting. You should, why did you ever say it? I don't know. Uh, I'll I, to think if there's other theories I have about you. I, haven't <laughs> I do think what you said, though, is true that we let the conversation dictate the length. Yeah. Like uh, during the last news episode, I could kind of sense, okay, this episode yeah. is about to wrap up. Whereas when we're doing the surprise by Pope episodes, like, let's just, yeah, let's let this thing go and see what happens. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I think, but your preference is in general, all other things being equal, 20, 30 minutes tops. I think that might be true. I would, but if you were just to ask me, I might say an hour or less. Yeah. So, all right. Good. Good. Good thoughts. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. I can't believe I never shared that with you. <laughs>